According to James 1, 26-27, true religion, or the external observable qualities of a life of faith, are demonstrated by obeying God's law. James addressed three areas of the law with which we struggle. Controlling the tongue, caring for the helpless, and constraining worldliness. He focused on the issue of caring for the helpless in chapter 2. The basis for caring for the helpless is the statute condemning partiality as, regard, as recorded in Leviticus 19, 15, and 18. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And of course we know that our neighbor is anyone with whom we have contact. Now in chapter 3, James deals with controlling our tongue. The tongue, glossa, refers to our language or speech. The basis for James' command to control our tongue is found in Proverbs. Proverbs 13.3 states, The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Also, Proverbs 17.27-28 says, He who restrains his word has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Furthermore, it's revealed in Proverbs 6, 16 and 19, that there are seven things that God hates and calls abominations. Of those seven things, three involve the tongue. A lying tongue, a false witness that utter lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. Now, in the first part of chapter 3, James explained why our tongues, why our language must be controlled. Though it is small, the tongue will control and dominate the entire person. As well empowered by Satan, the tongue corrupts the whole person and spreads evil throughout one's life. Believer, you and I would do well to remember that just as Jesus judges our faith based upon our deeds of compassion, so too he will judge our faith Upon our speech, Matthew twelve thirty seven, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So having explained the necessity for controlling our tongues, James next tackles the issue of wisdom. His contention is that the words of our mouths reveal the wisdom of our mind. Again, the words of our mouths reveal the wisdom of our minds. Hence, in James 3, 13-18, James explores the wisdom behind one's words. The wisdom behind one's words. Suffice to say that what comes from our mouths reveals whether our wisdom is hellish or heavenly. Now let's begin with verse 13-16. through 16, And we're going to consider the topic of hellish wisdom. Hellish wisdom. Again, we're considering the wisdom behind our words. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now, James 3.1, he addressed those who desire to teach. 
Let not many of you become teachers. Now in verse 13, he again addresses those desiring to be teachers. He asks, who among you is wise and understanding? Now that phrase, wise and understanding, was used in the Old Testament as a standard for those who would serve as elders. Deuteronomy 1.13 Choose wise and discerning, i.e. understanding, wise and understanding, and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. God expected these Jewish elders to set an example so that all the people would be wise and understanding before the Gentile nations. Deuteronomy 4.6 So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And the means by which we can be wise and understanding is by fearing and knowing Yahweh, the Holy One. Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now the term wise, sophos, refers to someone skilled or learned. The Greeks referred to their philosophers as wise. James, however, uses the Jewish application of the term, which refers to those grounded in theology and able to teach. The term understanding, epistemon, describes one who is intelligent or experienced. In essence, James is asking, who amongst his readers claim to be theologians or teachers, whether or not they possess the knowledge or experience to teach God's word. Who among you has the knowledge or experience to teach God's word? To the one who claims to be wise and understanding, James challenges them to show by his good behavior and his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now that verb show, dechnomy, it's an imperative meaning to make visible or prove. James used this back in uh, the same term back in chapter 2 and verse 18. Show, me, show me your faith without the works, and I will show, me, you, my faith by my works. His point was that we prove our faith by our obedience to God's law. In James 3.18, he now wants believers, to, particularly those who teach or want to teach, to give evidence of their worthiness to teach God's word by their behavior. See, believers, we provide evidence through our good behavior. The term good, kalos, refers to something that's morally upright. Behavior, anastrophe, denotes our manner of life or conduct. In other words, we demonstrate our worthiness to teach the scriptures by our morally upright conduct. Someone who imparts wisdom to others must first demonstrate that they can apply that wisdom to their own life. Now, perhaps you're thinking and asking, how are we to provide or demonstrate our morally upright conduct? The answer is there in the text, in the phrase, in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, I admit that on the surface, that statement seems ambiguous. However, by translating the Greek text, the meaning becomes clear. Throughout his epistles, James has used the term deeds, ergon, to refer to works or actions that conform to God's law. Again, in James 2.18, believers were challenged to prove their faith by their works, their ergon, or their deeds of obedience to God's law. 
You see, if we are obedient to God's law, we will be morally upright in our conduct. Now, the term gentleness, protes, refers to humility or meekness. James used this same term in chapter 1, verse 21, translated as humility. In humility, protes, receive the word implanted. His exhortation was that we are to engage in the study of Scripture in humility. That is, in, with an attitude where we accept what God declares without resisting or resenting what He commands. It implies that we're not to be impressed with our own self-importance. In other words, as you and I study the Word of God, the Word of Truth, we must maintain a teachable spirit instead of a know-it-all attitude. Hence, here in James 3.13, James exhorts us to prove our worthiness to teach God's Word by our desire to obey what His Word commands willingly. My friend, listen, if you are not willing to obey what God's Word commands, you're not fit to teach. To teach the Word without obeying the Word is utter hypocrisy. Are you willing to obey what God commands? The phrase of wisdom qualifies the term gentleness or humility. The term wisdom here, sophia, generally refers to the application of knowledge. Specifically, it refers to the practice of the requirements needed for upright living. Grammatically, of wisdom is a genitive of source. That is, wisdom is the source of gentleness or humility. In other words, gentleness or humility comes from wisdom or the practice of God's law. In other words, the degree to which you are humble demonstrates the degree to which you obey God's law. So friends, what does your humility say about you and God's law? See, in a culture where we're apt to think more highly of ourselves than necessary, James issues a command for everyone, especially teachers, to demonstrate our moral uprightness by obeying God's law. In turn, obedience will produce humility. And while it may be possible for you to feign obedience, your humility or lack thereof will demonstrate whether you are qualified or able to teach. James continues in verse 14 with the adversative, but, to express a contrast. In contrast to the wisdom that produces humility, there is another type of wisdom, hellish wisdom. Hellish wisdom produces bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. These two attitudes are joined together by the first class conditional phrase, if you have, implying the statement to be accurate. Thus James says, since you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there is a hellish wisdom behind your words. Now the term bitter, picros, refers to that which is harsh. Jealousy, zelos, denotes envy or contention. And when we put those two terms together, it refers to harsh resentment or anger towards others for their success. Selfish ambition, erythia, describes a drive to advance oneself in an unethical manner. Aristotle used this term, erethia, to describe partisan greedy politicians who seek their agenda at any cost. We don't know anything about that today, right? 
Sadly, it is too often the case that churches are marked by partisan greedy leaders who are interested only in their own agenda and will bring it about at any cost. Heed the words of Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now James notes the root of both bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as being in your heart. The heart, kaidea, refers to the center of your volition and emotion. And that these believers are tolerating these devilish attitudes in their hearts, James issues a twofold command. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Both do not be arrogant and so lie are imperatives with a negative particle meaning to stop an action in progress. Arrogant, katakakomai, means to boast of one's achievements. These believers were boasting of their wisdom and claiming to be fit to teach. However, their bitter jealousy and selfish ambition revealed that their supposed wisdom was hellish. And they were not fit to handle the word of truth. And as such, James commands them to stop boasting to others of how wise and understanding they are. As well, James commands them to not lie against the truth. The verb lie, pseudomai, means to deny something. These believers claim to be wise and understanding, but their bitter jealousy and selfish ambition proves their claims of being wise and understanding are just a lie. They're deceiving themselves. The truth of the matter is they do not possess any God-given wisdom or understanding. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are the antithesis of humility, the byproduct of obeying God's law. Any believer who claims to be wise, if you claim to be wise and understanding, but you resent someone else for their success, or you advance yourself in an unethical manner, is, you are then nothing more than a liar. In verse 15, James now provides the source of hellish wisdom. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. From above, anothen, means from a higher place. It was used in James 2.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, anothen. Contextually, anothen means that all the gifts which God the Father bestows upon his children originate in heaven. Thus, wisdom from above is from God and originates in heaven. To James' point then, wisdom that is jealous and selfish is not heavenly. That is, it's not from God. Now previously in James 1.5, we were exhorted that if any of us lack wisdom, we are to ask of God. Be assured, my friends, wisdom from God does not produce bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James next provides three descriptions of hellish wisdom. It's earthly, demonic, and natural. This threefold description forms the 14th triad of this epistle. Remember, these triads are arguments that employ the role of thirds to make them memorable. Now, it's interesting that James chose to describe hellish wisdom as earthly, natural, and demonic as those terms parallel the three enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. First, hellish wisdom is earthly. The term earthly, epikios, implies that such wisdom fails to consider God's will. 
Paul used this earthly idea in his description of false teachers in Philippians 3.19. They set their mind on earthly things. You see, if you use hellish wisdom, you will adopt the philosophies and rationales that, of the world that best serve your interests instead of God's. For example, I know the scripture says I should blank, but I'm going to blank anyway. You fill in the blank. Hellish wisdom calculates and schemes to achieve its goals. Second, hellish wisdom is natural. The term natural, sukikas, refers to wisdom as being controlled by one's fleshly appetites. It can be translated as unspiritual. Such wisdom is oriented towards pursuing whatever will appease one's carnal appetites. For example, I know that blank is wrong, but it makes me feel good, so I'm going to do it anyway. You fill in the blank. Third, hellish wisdom is demonic. The term demonic, demonodes, does not imply demon possession, but instead demon-like. Now what does it mean to be demon-like? Well, demons are fallen angels who chose to rebel against God and follow Satan. Thus, wisdom that is demon-like is, re is rebellious towards God. For example, I know that God says that blank is sin. I don't care what God says, I'm doing it anyway. Again, fill in the blank. Finally, in verse 16, James describes the result of hellish wisdom. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Again, the ungodly attitudes of jealousy and selfish ambition are the byproduct of hellish wisdom. And it results in disorder and every evil thing. Every evil thing describes all types of evil and immorality. The phrase implies that hellish wisdom is antinomian. That is, it casts off God's law and embraces a spirit of lawlessness. Disorder, akastasia, refers to instability and confusion. James previously used this term to depict the double-minded person as unstable in all his ways. He also described the double-speaking tongue as restless or akastasia, implying that it's unstable and unruly in James 3.8. And where you tolerate bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, you can guarantee that churches are going to be unstable and unruly. Nonetheless, believers, you and I would do well to remember God's statement to the unstable Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of stability. He is a God of rules. And He expects His people to be the same. Now in James 3.17, the adversative but is used again to introduce a contrast. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, here the contrast is regarding a different type of wisdom. The wisdom from above. As previously stated, the phrase from above means from a higher place and is used in the New Testament for heaven. So then there are two types of wisdom behind your words. One from above, that is heavenly, and one that is not from above, that is hellish. Now James employs a logical argument 
commonly used in the epistles, known as a serites, to demonstrate the distinction between heavenly and hellish wisdom. According to the Pocket Dictionary for the Study of New Testament Greek, a serites is a sequence of propositions in which one established predicate becomes the subject of the next proposition. These propositions are linked together in a step-by-step chain that culminates in the climax of the argument. James' argument is to show that heavenly wisdom is distinctly different from hellish wisdom. And as such, he sets forth eight ethical virtues that set heavenly wisdom apart from hellish wisdom. And his argument concludes by demonstrating the result produced by heavenly wisdom. Now, at the foundation of this chain of virtues is purity. The term first, protos, means before anything else and can be translated as of most significant importance. As an ethical virtue, purity is the most important and key to the other seven virtues. The term pure, hagnos, implies that heavenly wisdom is free from defilements. The Greek term hagnos derives from the root term hagios, meaning holy or blameless. Thus, something that is pure is something that is holy. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus announced that believers who are pure in heart or holy in heart will be blessed. And to be pure or holy means that we must separate ourselves from the destructive nature of hellish wisdom. Will you do that? Will you separate yourself from hellish wisdom. Further, based on the use of the term first, followed by the term then, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, we can state that the next seven virtues demonstrate why heavenly wisdom is pure. Based upon the seven virtues arrangements, we can argue that James is doing precisely that, demonstrating that heavenly wisdom is pure. Now, James arranged the next seven virtues into three groups, or again, another triad, forming the 15th triad of this epistle. The first group, and this is difficult to see in English, but the first group, peaceable, gentle, and reasonable, are alliterated and have similar endings. Irenike, epikes, euethes. All of them begin with the epsilon, or letter E. The second group comprises two virtues, mercy and good fruit, which are subordinated to the term full of. The third group, unwavering without hypocrisy, is also alliterated and has similar endings, adakritas and anapokritas. Again, they both start with the alpha, the ah, and end with the kritas. So after purity, heavenly wisdom is peaceable. Now in the Old Testament, peace is a byproduct of wisdom. Proverbs 10:17 Wisdom's ways are pleasant and all her paths are peace. The term peaceable Arenike means to seek harmonious relationships. It strives to heal divisions and protect unity. Being peaceable is actively working to eliminate all rivalries and factions. And we're not only to strive to seek harmony and unity with one another, but with all people, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. See, if we are peacemakers, we will be blessed. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
That said, it must be affirmed that the pursuit of peace is not peace at any cost. As Warren Wearsby states, the peace of the church is not more important than the purity of the church. If the church is pure, devoted to God, then there will be peace. That is, there will never be peace in a church that tolerates or ignores unrighteousness and sin. Isaiah 32, verse 17. The work of righteousness will be peace. And so that's why first, wisdom, heavenly wisdom is pure, then peaceable. We never sacrifice purity for the sake of peace. Now after peaceable, heavenly wisdom is gentle. Gentle, epa a case, refers to being gracious or compassionate, especially towards those who offend. Listen, it's easy when offended to be angry, but we can't allow that anger to overtake us. Remember, a gentle answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15.1. Jesus set the, forth the example of gentleness in Matthew 11.29, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Furthermore, God requires that all of us, whether elders or believers, be gentle and peaceable. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3. an overseer must be gentle and peaceable. Titus 3.2, all people are to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, the Hebrew equivalent of epaikes is salah, which means to forgive. In other words, we need to be ready to forgive those who offend us. And, when, and if we are gentle, will we, be, we will be blessed. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, after gentle, heavenly wisdom is reasonable. The term reasonable, ufethes, describes being agreeable and easy to work with someone. Being reasonable does not mean that you're gullible, nor does it imply compromising your convictions. It's open to reason. It's willing to listen, so long as theological and moral issues are not at stake. When we are reasonable, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Now, if you're not sure what that means, consider the following definition. To disagree means to be at odds over an issue. Disagreeable, though, means to be unpleasant and obnoxious. Big difference. After reasonable, heavenly wisdom is full of mercy. The term full, mestas, means to be controlled by something. Those who possess heavenly wisdom should be controlled by mercy. Ilias. Mercy is love and action. The Hebrew equivalent of Ilias is chesed, meaning loyal love. Mercy is unconditionally loving the helpless and hopeless, the distressed and the disgraced, to meet their needs irrespective of their ability to repay. As well, mercy means lovingly correcting people's mistakes and not holding their past mistakes against them. And those who show mercy will be blessed. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. After full of mercy, heavenly wisdom is full of good fruits. Again, the full, mestas, refer, applies to both mercy and good fruits. Here, good, agathos, denotes something of moral excellence. Fruits, karpos, refers to deeds or works done. Hence, heavenly wisdom performs only works that are morally excellent. Conveys the idea of righteousness. In other words, if you possess heavenly wisdom, you will be controlled by righteousness. And believers who are righteous will be blessed. Matthew 5.10 Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. After full of good works, heavenly wisdom is unwavering. Unwavering, a diakritas, means undivided or single-minded. 
It means to be free from prejudice against people and double-mindedness towards God. James has previously warned us about being double-minded regarding our loyalties to God back in James 1.8. And he's warned us about the dangers of prejudice in James 2, 1 to 13. Single-minded believers, if you're single-minded, you are a person of moral and spiritual integrity whose works match your words. After unwavering, heavenly wisdom is without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy, an apokritas means sincere or genuine. Too often the accusation has been made that the church is full of hypocrites. And sadly, the accusation is true. Churches are filled with hypocrites or actors, playing the part expected of them, when they're nothing more than charlatans playing church. They simply go through the motions, but there's nothing genuine in their motives. And I hope that's not you. Believers who are without hypocrisy consistently display each of the virtues of heavenly wisdom. I pray that we are challenged to strive to that end. How about you? Are these virtues in you or not? Are you pursuing heavenly wisdom or not? Having laid out these eight virtues of heavenly wisdom, James concludes his argument by providing the result of heavenly wisdom. Hellish wisdom results in disorder and every evil thing. Heavenly wisdom, however, results in the fruit of righteousness. Again, verse 18, somewhat ambiguous in English. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The statement is a proverb of the early church. The idea behind the proverb is captured best in the English of the complete Jewish Bible. And peacemakers who sow seed in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now the phrase, the seed whose fruit is righteousness, can be literally rendered as the fruit that righteousness produces, or i.e. the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is a common Old Testament phrase. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. Amos 6.12, you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Now in the Old Testament, righteousness conferred the idea of conformity to God's moral standard, the law. Thus the fruit of righteousness refers to the harvest or byproduct of conforming oneself to God's law. As we conform ourselves to God's law, we will then display those ethical virtues that characterize heavenly wisdom. As James previously stated, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James 1.20 Thus the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Righteousness fruit can only grow where there is peace. Where there is discord, there is no peace. And where there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there is no righteousness. My friends, I know many of you will likely claim that you're wise and understanding but I would like you to honestly consider whether your words and works reveal that you have heavenly wisdom or if they reveal your wisdom is hellish. Does what come out of your mouth reveal hellish or heavenly wisdom? And if we were honest, we'd have to say there are times when it's hellish and there's times when it's heavenly. We pray that more often than not it's heavenly. 
As Paul stated in Romans 12, 3, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Listen, if an honest evaluation reveals bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your life, then I challenge you to repent and forsake the direction of hellish wisdom. Pray and ask God for heavenly wisdom. As he promised to those who ask for wisdom, he'll give it freely and abundantly. As we close, I'd like you to consider the Lord's rebuke of Peter in Matthew chapter 16. In the span of a few hours, Peter spoke with both heavenly and hellish wisdom. When, asked, when Jesus asked the disciples in verse 16 who they thought he was, Peter spoke with heavenly wisdom. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, in verse 22, after Jesus foretold of his impending death, Peter rebukes him. In that instance, he spoke with hellish wisdom. And as a result, Jesus responded to Peter in verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Now, Peter was not possessed by Satan. Jesus' point was that Peter acted like Satan. He acted demonic in rebuking Jesus. Here's the perfect example of what James referred to as being double-tongued, back in verse 12. Out of the same mouth came both heavenly and hellish wisdom. My friends, Peter's not only a perfect example, but he's a good reminder that all of us have the capacity to be double-tongued, to speak both heavenly and hellish wisdom. And so I challenge you to remember the words of Matthew 12, 37. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this timely challenge to us to consider the wisdom behind our words, to take a moment, Lord, not just think about our words, but what our words reveal about our thinking. And Father, we confess that too often we're directed, we're led by hellish wisdom. And that's why there's so much contention, so much strife, and so much bitterness, and so much selfishness. And yet, Father, you have challenged us to forsake that. Help us through your Spirit to that end. Help us to leave behind, to repent and leave behind hellish wisdom. Wisdom that is earthly and natural and demonic. And pursue a wisdom from above. And then, Father, Lord, as we, as we pursue heavenly wisdom, that we'll begin to see, first and foremost in our life, a life of purity. And then peace. And gentleness. And reasonableness and so on through these virtues. That these virtues would become eminent in our life. So that we might be a testimony, not just to one another, but that as the world sees those virtues, they might see us as wise and understanding, and might know that our wisdom and understanding comes from above, comes from you. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.